there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people about how they do their thing and how they handle all the ups and downs. Today, my guest is an actor named Mike Milan. He is currently starring in the one-man show Buyer and Seller at the Celebration Theater here in Los Angeles. It's running through April 17th. It's the show that Michael Yuri did several years back about the gay guy that ends up working in Barbara Streisand's basement. Some of you may have seen that original run. I did, and I loved it, and I got to see it again with Mike, and he brings a whole other flavor to it. It's a delightful production. Great sets. The tea set was awesome, and Mike's performance was terrific. So I was so excited to have this conversation with him. But before we get to that, I want to remind you that there are now two ways you can enjoy Dennis Anyone. The first way is to listen as you always do, or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. For $12.95 a month, you get access to this show 48 hours early, and you get a slew of other terrific shows. It's really worth the investment. And if you say that my show is the one you listen to most, I will get a little money. So that's always nice. All right, thanks for that. And if you want to call and leave a voicemail about anything to do with the show, the number is 1-888-647-9653. I'd love to hear from you. All right, that's enough of the plugs. Here's the interview with Mike Milan. All right, joining me now via Zoom, it's Mike Milan, the star of Byron Seller, which is currently showing at the Celebration Theater. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Well, I'm excited to talk to you because I saw the show the other night, and it's delightful. You do a great job. Um, I remember when the show Thank came you. out originally, and I've, I've probably seen it twice already before you, um, but it was all new and different and fun, and it felt like it felt fresh. I thought the production was great. The set, the, the tea set was wonderful. The, it was like I think I'm a fan of the Celebration Theater. It's it's been in LA for a long time, and um, I just thought for their first thing back, I'm like, okay, this is awesome. Like they they're doing a good job. They're doing it right, and you're terrific uh, in the Thank in the you. character of Alex. How did it come to you? Was it a regular audition, or how did this happen? Well, it's actually funny that you asked because I just got sort of the full tea this weekend. Um, uh, Katie Lindsay, our director, actually told me that she saw me in Found, which I did with the Iama Theater Company back in 2020, March of 2020 to be exact. Um, so she saw me in that uh, musical there and then sort of recommended me to come uh, get audition for Buyer and Seller. So, but they missed, I guess I, I got sort of lost in the shuffle in the first rounds. And um, I was in, in that first like sort of bracket of people, and she, apparently she had asked like specifically like we gotta get Mike in here. So thank God she did because it came at such a time. I mean, obviously we're all like crawling <laughs> back to normalcy every day, but um, this feels like I mean going from zero to a thousand. So I so I auditioned with like a self tape, like you know one of the many self tapes that I've been doing for the past few years. And then uh, yeah, and then the callbacks happened, and then we actually had our callback in person. Which which felt very nice and they were so sweet and like accommodating and lovely. So yeah, that's pretty much how it all happened. How would you describe the show to someone that had never seen it? Well, I basically describe it like 
real actual life IRL Barbara Streisand keeps all of her things in um, a basement that is designed like this decorative arts museum in Delaware called Winter Theater and she sort of has like a room for her dolls and a room for her clothes and a room for her antiques and you know she's a very particular woman who has a lot of things and throughout all these years she's decided instead of just putting them in the basement to sort of make a you know museum out of it so Jonathan Tollins basically um, wrote a fantasy of uh, you know amusing with the idea of what if somebody's job was to work down there and um, you know it starts off and it's this very sort of campy tale about this sort of out of work LA actor who has to work for you know one of the biggest stars in history and what he learns from her and things like that but when Katie and I the director when we sat down we were like <laughs> one of the first questions I had with her was like you know is this just sort of fluffy gay fodder <laughs> is this just going to be sort of like fun gay jokes and like that's it Right. Um, she was like, no, I think that we have like a lot of stuff to, to mine in these texts. And like, you know, with 2020 and not only like COVID, but like the Me Too movement of everything, it just feels like there's a sort of pre 2020 and post 2020. So to do this play that was written in about uh, 2013 felt sort of, you know, we have to handle this in a, so that 2022 audiences don't feel like, oh, God, look at these, like, dated, you know, references or things like that. And luckily, Jonathan wrote, like, a, a truly lovely, charming script that stands the test of time. And he's sort of ahead of his time as far as, like, honoring this woman as more than just the sort of jokey Barbara Streisand, like, uh, you know, needs a white microphone, white walls that we, right. that we sort of know her as. You know, so that was really what was what what my favorite part of the show is is like not only like living my gay fantasy of living as Barbara and walking in her shoes, but also just to be like, wow, there is um there is something about uh speaking about this woman with reverence and and seeing her as more than just the the stories of you know around the, around the block of like oh god she's this and she's difficult and this is this and me as like a, a mixed race Latino person you know there is this sort of line of um, of her taking advantage and things like that we were like discovering all these things that looking at the show with the lens that we have now was really exciting and it was just cool to see like we were like all right this is going to be more than than what people have seen before and the hard thing about doing a one-man show is like you know everyone's comparing me to michael yuri every single time i go out there of course like unnaturally so he invented the role so it, it is so nice and sort of freeing to be able to have them trust me and say, no, let's figure out your Alex and your Barbara and your, you know, at, at all characters that you do. And so it's been cool to have that freedom with it. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the way it's, it's sort of aged in the eight years or nine years since, since then. Cause I love a Barbara Streisand gossipy story more as much as the next queen. And, right. you know, there's, I've, I have several in my bag of tricks that I heard through a friend who, whatever, and they're delightful and fun and dishy, but you know what? They fade, but funny girl's still there. Like, yes, the work is still fucking there and watching yeah. it, watching this now. And they, there's a whole section about her doing gypsy because she wanted to play mama mm -hmm. Rose. And, you know, of course the gossip was, oh, she's too old. Who does she think? She's crazy. Whatever. All this stuff. Watching this now, I'm bummed it didn't happen. I'm bummed we didn't right. get it. Right? I get goosebumps every time because I'm like, she would be 
amazing. And you would root for for Mama Rose in a way that you you can't really with these other, you know, with like Patty Lapone's abrasiveness and that sort of thing. You know what I mean? That like moxie that you think about. It would be such her own thing. And that's what's so brilliant about Funny Girl. You know, I, I actually had never seen Funny Girl until I got this. Um, show. Right on. I tried to watch it. It just wasn't my thing. And then I finally... <laughs> then you had to get over it for the job. It's part of the job. I s- sort of sat through it and I was like, you know, it's so interesting because I think if it wasn't for her, it would be a flop, flop of a musical. Because ultimately, like, when you think of Funny Girl, you think of this, like, strong woman and this sort of, like, brazen, I'm the greatest star. But it starts like that. But once she meets freaking what's-his-name, Nick, or whatever his name is, Nick the Yonson? whole movie Yonson? turns into, like, yeah. ugh, for me, it sort of... It, yeah, Nick Arnstein, yeah. It, then she just becomes this sort of, like, oh, God, my man, my man, my man. And right. it, it, she stops performing. And when I realized that Don't Run On My Parade wasn't, like, her busting through the door and being like, I need to sing for the world or whatever, and it was actually her leaving her job to go find her man that she doesn't even know really loves her or not, I was, like, thoroughly disappointed. Yeah. But I also was like, you know, I can watch it with knowing full well, like, that was, you know, a time but she is just so good and she is so believable and there's just some like mag like magnetic thing about her that the more I was watching the more I was falling in love with her and I was like I just have to I want to envelop myself with this woman like she I wasn't really that big of a you know, Barbara Queen, when I, when I started, there's a joke about it in the, in the play, but it's, it, it's true to my life as well. Like, it just never was, she was always there. I always admired the voice, but I always sort of the, you know, stereotype of her preceded even the talent because I just was sort of born after her hate day. And I mean, I've just been going through the old stuff and watching like her old concerts in New York. And she's like this vaudevillian comedian, like, actress and and seeing that she didn't even want to be a singer really she just happened to be able to sing is like fascinating to me and you know we live in such a time of like watching privileged people use their privilege and be celebrated for asking mommy and daddy for a job and like to see this woman who was like just chutzpah from the start make something out of nothing at a very young age was just like is it just spoke to me so much and then I definitely have always wanted to do one just a one man show it was something that I was always like I think I would be good at that it's I've spent a lot of time doing I, I was like sort of raised being a musical theater dancer singer actor and all of that so this is the opposite of that in such a different way it's just me and and sort of that reliance on myself but I also have always loved I was always like that kid who was like I can play the part if you, if she's out, I can play it. I can, yeah. you know what I mean? So I loved doing, I, I it's for me to do my, the whole show by myself has always been a dream. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but once I read it, um, I was like, okay, there is like a nice piece of heart to this. And, and it was exciting. Like you said, to, to, to sort of have that challenge of like, stepping away from the bitchy queenie barber stories which i love more as much as the next person but to to show the audiences here that um there's something more than just the sort of you know easy low-hanging fruit about this superstar and getting to play alex like this sort of 
L.A. actor who hasn't gotten the breaks that he feels he needs or wants or deserves. And, like, you know, that all rings very true to me. And, and somebody who feels, okay, if I just put in, you know, put in the work and put a nice smile on, if I'm just happy to be there, then it'll all pay out. And that doesn't always happen, you know? Talk to me about morale and self-taping. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's very surreal and it feels kind of like dumb and like, and when, when do you, how do you tell yourself, I've got to bring it on this one. This one has to be more special than all my other ones, but it's the same wall. It's still me. Nothing comes of most of them. Like, how do you get it up for a self tape? Honestly, I think the big thing that I've learned is to, um, I mean, I guess it sounds sort of negative, but to to know that it really doesn't matter. That ultimately, I mean, there's something that it's similar to us going in the room. Obviously, it sucks because you don't have that, hey, what's up, that that human connection thing. Right. But there are pros to it. I mean, like, I fully don't have to, you know, put on shoes. (laughs) And, like, I don't have to wait in a waiting room with... 30 other people that look sort of like me and have all of those nerves and I can choose the absolute best one and then give it. But I I don't give myself, I give myself, I like learn it. And then I give myself three takes of like solid got through it and it felt good. And the the more I do, if I do any more than three, I know that it it just gets fake. So it's, I just say to myself, this doesn't matter. And ultimately, like, I think we spend a lot of time trying to get this perfect thing, but I don't think that that's what they're really looking for. I think even when you go in for regular auditions, they're like, great, you look like the person that we need you to look like. So that already got rid of half the freaking people. They that are know in the first this. 10 seconds if there's a possibility. Yeah. So why, like, why go through this painstaking situation? If they want somebody with straight hair and you have curly hair or whatever, you know, like, just know that, like, okay, I'm going to go do it because maybe this will get me the next one. But I'm not going to go and get a chemical press and, like, go and change my entire thing. A big thing I learned here is, like, if if you just scream from the roof, Jobs will line up for you in a way that is so much easier than you trying to fit into the requirements that they're asking for. Because no matter what, that's going to come off fake and phony in any, in any way possible. So, like, you know, and I, I, I tend, I like to consider myself pretty versatile when it comes to the self tape game. Right. But you know, when it's something like Italian mafia boyfriend of like girl boss guy who is angry all the time. I'm like, this isn't going to be me. So, you know what? Let's just have fun. And, right. and I think I'm going to do it for myself. I think, I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah, because it's so we don't get any fun. Like everything about everything about everything that an actor does feels out of your control. Feels like hard work. Feels like this sort of like up uphill battle, and it doesn't have to be. Like you just have to. There's this has come from a long you know decade or so of really caring too much but the minute that i just stopped caring and the minute that i just said well i know i'm good if they don't want it then they don't want it right you know there is this sort of mentality that you have to have of just like there's nothing that i can do that's going to make these people you know change their mind about what they want so that's not my job my job is to go in and do the best job i possibly can so i'm going to go and 
you know, you can't expect to, to get what they're thinking in their head when they give you, like, you know, Sal, grocery clerk, who really loves the day or whatever, some generic, you know, right. breakdown or whatever. You create that world, and maybe they like it, and that's what comes through. But yeah. for this, especially, I was like, oh, I know this person. I know it. And any time I've ever had any audition, you know when you're right, and you know when you're like, this is something I'm really going to fight for. What have you noticed about the vibe around gay actors and gay characters and has it changed in the time that you've been auditioning it's changed immensely i think um and you know i could like write a whole dissertation about this because i'm fascinated by it but uh it's mostly um great progress that has been made i would say like as much as there have been certain eye things and you know we still have plenty of straight actors taking parts away from gay from gay actors and all of that and there's you know so many things to talk about there but i think as a whole we've gotten so so much more representation and not just oh like you know the archetype gay guy in each show we're having like trans representation gender fluid representation poc homosexual bisexual pansexual representation all the way down um i think it gets a little so 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 all of that to say i'm very proud to be a part of the community now um with that it's still like i think we have a long way to go and there's still plenty of work to be done and as somebody who like like I struggle a lot with um, when I see something that's like broken down as gay. It's often this, you know, stereotype of like very feminine or very bitchy or very like sassy or really into fashion or really into whatever, you know, these sort of 90s archetypes of what it means to be a gay person. And it's like kind of crazy because I think we're a little bit past that. Back to Byron Seller. How do you memorize? What's this? Do you have any tricks? It's just you. So you can't, like, go off somebody else's cue. Yeah. How do you learn a whole show? Um, I would love to tell you the answer to that. Are there post-its? I would Please tell me there's say... some office supplies involved. I need some office supplies. I need a post-it. I need... <laughs> there's not a... Are there scene. highlighters? <laughs> tell me there's highlighters. No, really. Shit. I honestly... You did not go I, to Staples like, how... for anything. <laughs> No, Office Min, not Office Max. Very oh. minimal. <laughs> um, but no, I was surprised. I was shocked that um, that the material was sticking with me. But I also think that's a testament to Jonathan Tolland's writing. And I kept on saying throughout the process, like, thank God this is easy to memorize. Because ultimately it's a story. So there's certain, there's certain you know, um, like there's certain monologues that I go through before at the beginning, you know, sort of warming up and just go through, like, a lot of Barry, who is Alex's boyfriend in show, a lot of his stuff is super rapid fire, quick, 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 as I'm doing something or whatever. So it's things like that that I want to just make sure that the timing gets right, and that's what stresses me out. Um, it, it just has happened. I'm just very lucky that I have the ability to keep it all in there. Well, you want to know where you really shine, in my opinion? Go on. Go on. I know. I'm going to tell you what you really, <laughs> the really grounded moments, the fights and the arguments. I was like, oh, fuck. Uh, I'm feeling that. I felt Thank it. you. Yeah. That means a lot. Like that when really, when that it, was. It gets real and maybe there's some eye welling and stuff going on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. That really does mean a lot because I, you know, it's my favorite part of it. As, as fun as it is to do all of the like, you know, describing the antiques clothes boutique. Right. Um, there's something really fun about arguing with yourself and having to justify both 
parts of the argument, getting to fight with myself is, like, so fun. I mean, it's like, you know when you, like, run into someone in the street or something, and then you're like... You get into, like, a tiff with some random stranger, you're, like, in the shower, and you're like, you know what I would say? I'd be like this. And then, you know, like, this complete fantasy that you make up. Yeah, I wanted to like, go off on a woman in Paquito Moss the other night because I went there to get uh, mashiladas, my favorite dish. The app yes. said they were open till 9.30. I show up at 9.10. The door is open, and I walk in, and she's like, we closed at 9. And I was like, the app says 9.30. And she's like, we're closed. But but she was so stone cold, shut it down. And yeah. I was so overcome with anger that I considered slamming the door. And thank God I didn't. And I'm still wondering, why did that make me so mad? Why was right. that moment? But you know what it is? I played by the rules. I wasn't yeah. freezing in there. I did not I did my homework. Right. And the door right. opened. Lock the door. Like, they made two <laughs> mistakes. And then right. they gave me attitude. And you came all the way over there, like, it's not like it's, like, you know, you're from the comforts of your home, and they're like, sorry, you can't order the DoorDash or whatever. Like, you traveled. That's incredibly... With gas prices, I mean, come on. Okay. I know. Yeah, horrible. And I, (laughs) you know, that feeling... This is how angry I was. For a split second, I considered (laughs) giving up Paquito Moss forever. And then I realized, no, it's Paquito Moss. It's delicious. Cool your jets, Dennis. Calm down. Oh, my God, of course. I mean, I have definitely, like, deleted a long, like, Google review rant because of that exact same thing. And I'm like, all right, it's just tacos. Let's calm down a little bit. One of the themes that really stuck with me this time about the show is how isolating fame can be. Like, you feel sort of Mm. bad for the way Barbara is depicted because she can't really connect with people as much. Like... Like, this thing of, like, you know, it's all a fantasy. Like, Jonathan Tolins, who I know and, and actually got to interview for this podcast, you know, it's just him spinning, like, his, his idea of what might happen. But you know they're never going to be real friends. You know that. You know it. Yeah. Or maybe I know it because I right. lived here and had situations like that. <laughs> what do you think of the idea of connecting with famous people, the isolation of fame. I think it takes a certain amount of delusion anyway to, like, chase a dream. Right. <laughs> I think to be, like, you know, there for me to even be doing a one-man show in L.A., like, it took a certain amount of delusion to get here to say, you know what, yes, there's thousands of people auditioning for this, but I'm going to be the one that breaks through. And I think that, like, we all have that that thing, that Harry Potter wish that, oh, I'm going to get chosen out of all this sea of people. We're all just wanting to be chosen. And I think like, I think that's what gets Alex to, to continue through because, and I think it is a sort of like naive idea that like, you know, if you stick around with your famous friends that you two will be famous, but when you have nothing else and you have no other way of getting into that circle, that could be the way, you know what I mean? People have fully, I mean, look at freaking Kim Kardashian. If it wasn't for Paris Hilton, the world would be be quite different without that terror family terrorizing. So like, you know, I think there is as, as, as easy as it is to be like, this is wild and that's never going to happen. Sometimes it does. And, and I think, you know, there is like something, I think a lot of people are okay with the price of being fame, being loneliness and solidarity. I think that for a lot of people, it's like, 
well, I'd have a lot of stuff and not as many people than, you know, have a bunch of fake people around me or whatever and, you know, be struggling to make my rent every month. I think the older I get, the the less stuff I need and the more it's more about the people than the stuff. But I think yeah. when I think it's easy to be seduced by the stuff and the stuff can be great. Right. Yeah. But she's surrounded by all this stuff. And that was another part of the show I found very poignant when you're like. There's all this stuff. Why? Like, like, but it means a lot to her. Um, yeah. And the stuff for her is like weirdly making up for her lack of a childhood that she thinks she should have deserved. You know, it's like dolls and it's like these like little, little children's things. Like a lot of it has to do with like stunted youth and like, you know, n- never growing up, never even realizing, you know, Barry's whole argument throughout the whole thing is like, she didn't think she's pretty, but she, she has had sex with so many famous people. Right. She almost did this. She did this. She did all these pretty girl things. Yeah. She needs so, to give like, that a rest. Um, give it a rest. I saw what's up doc recently on the big screen. You want to <laughs> lick her skin. Yeah. She is gorgeous. So, I mean, I just was like, I just want to lick her skin. It's, it was just, yeah. I couldn't get over it. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. So she really like has inner light. It's, it's quite fascinating. The Grove shopping center figures in the script. And at yes. in 2013, the Grove was fresher, but you know what? It still works as a reference. We still got the Grove. <laughs> Any thoughts you want to share about the Grove? You know, I was actually just there this morning. Um, How was it doing? The smell oh, of sprinkles uh, in the air, the fountains, they bring it. Oh, yeah. Charming as ever. So many lovely people around. Just really respectful people. Um, you know, shopping and just being mindful of others. Uh, you know, it's so it's such a cute little kitschy area. As much as I, like, love to hate on it, I was like, ugh, gotta go to the Grove. And then I saw, like, the little trolley go by and, like, yeah. a little girl was, like, waving at people like she was on the freaking Polar Express. And I was like... Bah humbug, bah humbug, but that's really cute, you know? <laughs> it's enchanting. It can be enchanting. Um, yes. I worked at the Crate and Barrel at the Grove, which is also referenced in the show, uh, yes. as a seasonal uh, hire for a period of time. And, oh, um, my God. I, and it was all right. It was all right. Yeah? Yeah. Were there any horror stories? I remember losing it on one... I, I worked in merch. I was in the back, so I was like, you know... I was at a place in my life where uh, I needed some kind of thing to do that had a purpose but had nothing to do with writing or, like, it, my my uh, showbiz dreams had kind of tried to kill me. And so this sure. was a step toward uh, nervous system regulation. And you know what? I can put those spatulas from that box over onto that shelf. For a few hours. Yes. You know what it was? It was like 10 hours a week when I didn't have to try to make some something happen. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, what a relief. And something that you can check out, just yeah. sort of not, like, spend your day not caring about. Yeah. Is I, I totally, like, sympathize and empathize with that. Feeling. And you know what else it was? It was fair. Like, yeah. it was fair. I was making, like, probably minimum wage. But we all knew it, and it was fair. It was fair. Right. Like, they I, weren't having you go above and beyond or, like, you know, no. do anything that you weren't. Yeah. It, it was weird at that. Yeah. So I, I still have my shirts. I still rock my shirts when I go to the gym. I cut off the sleeves, you know. Oh, my God. I don't want people to think I'm on my way to work and ask me about, you know, lamps or discounts. I got a lot of cool stuff for friends with discounts, too. 
I still have dishes. Oh, I oh, bet. I yeah, bet. Yeah. Let's talk about that for <laughs> 20 minutes. But yeah, no, the Grove, the Grove is a thing. Uh, it's a place. Yeah, it sure is. It's a happy place. And now, it's growing. You moved to LA how long ago? I moved here about three years ago. And so, yeah, what three or brought four years you ago. out here? I was um, chosen to be to take part in the CBS Diversity Showcase. It's a, basically like a sketch comedy showcase. They audition people throughout the country, and then about seventeen of us uh, got to come here and sort of like do sketch comedy every week. And you sort of create these sketches, and you narrow it down to you know your final forty-five minute show, and then you do a sort of big showcase in front of all fancy all LA fancy people and. It was just a really great experience and so helpful with, like, breaking into the scene because, like, it's so hard to break in here. Coming from New York, New York is a little bit easier as far as, like, there's a trail that's already sort of pre-blazed. It's just there's a lot of people on the trail. So that's really the only thing you have to, like, worry about. But here it's so difficult. And um, it was not only a great place to just, like, meet a bunch of friends that were also moving here for the first time and didn't have a, a bunch of stuff already set up. But it also, like, was a really great business tool. I met my agents there and, like, met some of my favorite comedians and co-collaborators and, and best friends doing that uh, showcase. And so is a game changer for you. Oh, yeah. Oh, Good yeah. For you. And it was huge. It was huge for me, too, because I was coming. I had just made my Broadway debut in Escape to Margarita, the Jimmy Buffett music. Oh, I have questions. I have questions about that. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Yeah. Um, and so and it was kind of wild because I had injured myself during the run of it and I actually wasn't able to finish. And I got this like crazy back injury that was like truly, truly wild. Ooh. And had this whole like moment of like, fuck, like I'm. Get approaching my 30s, I know, but, like, also, you know, I was like, okay, that's around the time that dancers stop dancing and body starts start hurting, and um, I just felt so, like, who am I? What am I? I have nothing, and, like, this is something I've worked for my entire life, and, like, one little, like, you know, slipped little disc or whatever, and I'm fucking out, you know? Right. It really was traumatizing and, like, depressing, and having an injury is, like, a depression that a lot of people don't talk about because it is truly like it'll 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 really get you really really bad. Yeah. Um, but I was so thankful because I had done comedy, so I had auditioned for the showcase years before, but I didn't know what I was doing. They basically were just like, "Hey, the audition is come in, do your five minutes set, do whatever is going to be like really funny, just make us laugh." You have five minutes. And so before I took any improv class or anything, I was like, I have no idea. I pulled out like some real, you know, improv 101, like here's my mom or whatever, right. you know, character stuff. And I was like, okay, I don't know, but something's telling me to like keep on going with this. And I always loved comedy and I always loved watching it, but it really intimidated me because... I was already in a cult-like <laughs> community and I didn't want to go into another cult-like community and have to deal with the politics of all that. And yeah. I really loved it so much. It was like my secret little thing. So when I started, so when I first got the audition, I was like, okay, I think this is a sign. And I started taking improv class and I started doing comedy pretty seriously. And then I got the audition again and I really was able to be like, okay, I know what I'm doing now. And I like, you know, knocked it out of the park. And, there you go. Um, yeah. I mean, you worked yeah, hard and um, you figured out what it needed to be and you, and you brought it and laid it out. All of this to say, like it took, it's the perfect blend of 
people around you that is, are supporting you and being like, this is the guy for you. This is believing in you and saying that you got to see Mike for this. And then you also, you know, backing up all of the people believing in you and saying, yeah, I can do this. It was a real test for that for the first time was like, okay, so it's the marriage of, I recommend Mike for this thing. He's been working his ass off. He's somebody that you want to work with. And me also believing that and going at it. I was part of a writer's diversity project through the Writers Guild uh, a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was a big deal. I needed, at a time when I needed a yes, it was like a big yes. And what's cool about it, and I don't know if you will share this observation, is the other people in that thing, I'm rooting for them. If I see that yeah. one of them sold a show or is doing this or that, I'm like, yes, because that feels like it's one of us, right? Um, like, totally. Whereas other people in show business, I'm like, you fucker. Like, I go on Facebook. <laughs> exactly. For a while, I called Facebook. Look who's doing good in show business today. Fuck you. <laughs> right. Right. It's either that or people's animals have, are passing away. So right. <laughs> that's why I don't go on Facebook that much. But um, these people that I was part of that collective with, I really like. I'm so excited when something happens for them or they're doing this or that or whatever. Like you just form this this sort of band, right? Did you have that kind of experience with your diversity project? Absolutely. Even more than like my sort of BFA musical theater college thing, because that was super competitive oh, too. Oh, like, sure. You know, it wasn't this thing of, we've all been together for four years and like we all want the best for each other. It was like, no, I want yeah. the best for me. Yeah. And this it is such a different thing because it also is that, I think there's something about doing these diversity programs like as you know problem as they can be sometimes there is a, a great amount of well you're not me and i'm not you so if anyone's gonna get it i'd rather my friend get it who i know has been working their ass off you yeah. picked some questions from the observation deck so i'm gonna bring those out yes and then i still have to ask you about escape to margaritaville um, who was your most impactful teacher? I had a teacher named Joseph D'Antoni when I was truly just starting. Like, I was like nine or ten. We did um, the musical Lil Abner. I don't know if you're familiar at all. It's a real campy little I've heard of cartoon. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I, like, it was my first show ever, and uh, there was a part for, like, an older man, and I got this, like, little part. And there was just something about... Like I said, that chosen thing, you know, I was like the lowest kid on the totem pole and my mom was like, don't expect too much. You never know, blah, blah, blah. But like, he was the first person that really like saw something in me and saw that I really cared about it and really fostered it. And then through there, one of my biggest mentors, his name was Chris Bellella. He was my teacher in high school and he was just sort of the first person to really sit me down and be like this is what it takes and you know real talk and then finally like the most um impactful teacher for me in college was a woman named diana Mahler marino who was my acting teacher and she just was so um open and lovely and like really was the first person to say be you, be you, be yourself. Don't, don't change anything. You know, especially at that time, especially in theater programs, it was so much like, well, who's, who's somebody that you will follow and who, where's the track for you to go through? And like, you know, all that bullshit. And it, it, it took so much unlearning from my BFA program that I had to do that I'm still doing that I'm still paying for that. Like, you know, it just was like such a going to school, going to college for musical theater was probably my biggest regret that I've ever had because all it did was instill these 
these like, you know, self-sabotaging thoughts that I didn't really have before. I was like dangerously confident in high school. I love so. danger. There's nothing more, more fun than dangerous confidence. Yeah. yeah there, well, there's nothing more powerful, really. It can move mountains if you don't oh, know fully. better. And you're just like, yeah, why not? Um, where yeah. did you go to musical theater, uh, BFA? I went to the Hart School in Hartford, Connecticut. Right on. And it was just, you know, it was, it wasn't like a hellish hell place. It just wasn't for me. And like, it was filled with a lot of, um, you know, just hard, hard lessons to learn a lot of politics, a lot of, um, inappropriate, um, behavior, a lot of, you know, but like every single theater program at that time, to be clear, I'm not, we're, we're coming to terms with a lot of this stuff, but there's a lot of trauma that people pay a hundred thousand dollars to, to experience. When I first moved to LA, the thing that got me out here was a musical theater workshop at the music center downtown. Mm -hmm. And it was very, it was pitched as being very exclusive, but I got in. So, you know, it couldn't have been that exclusive. And there were like 11 guys and 11 girls. And it was five nights a week, 12 weeks, six hours a night. Like it was intense, right? And I got together with some of those people recently and we sort of processed the trauma of it. Cause it was one of those things where they're like, you got to work on that sibling S you need to lose 10 pounds out next. Mm-hmm. Like the idea was we're going to toughen you up for the biz. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that was the school of thought then. And of course there was one guy that one of the head people had already hit on like sexually propositioned and got rejected by. So he was punishing him by giving the other guy, like there was all that fucked up shit. It was like a cesspool of dysfunction that it did toughen you up in a way, but you had to be like, Oh, I can take this one sliver of good stuff from this and I have to discard 90% of it. Yeah. And some people never got there. Right. So I relate to it so much. Yeah. And I used to look around and sort of get frustrated with my class because, you know, I came, I had come from very humble beginnings. I'm still paying for my college experience. And a lot of these kids are like, Oh yeah, this is like fun. And like, my parents had a college fund, so I was able to whatever. So it's not that big of a deal to me, but I would be like in such an uproar and such an angry, like, like, how are we doing this? How are we letting this pass? And like, he's just saying this like horrible stuff or like bullying, like all the bullying between students and like teachers. And, you know, it's just a really, it can be a really hostile environment. And there are, there are good parts to it, of course, but overall I would have saved a hundred thousand dollars and, you know, not had, had been told that I, you know, need to look whiter or look thinner or need to look whatever and skipped a lot of that garbage stuff especially when like the currency is youth in this damn business i'm like don't spend four years you know coming out at 21 and you know the drinking problem and and like minor depression like just go and use the shows that you have from high school and just you know, work your way socially and make your way as, however you can. Go and take the classes individually, take the, you know, take the lessons, take the intensive, do all that stuff. But there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there. And even in, you know, New York and you start seeing your fellow actors teaching these kids. And it's like, I don't know where, 
just because that worked for you, just because a casting director saw you and put you in this role, that doesn't mean that you're qualified to like teach children how, (laughs) how to navigate their own like careers. Like it just used to always, it's just something that I feel really passionate about because at that time I was really sensitive and I was really like, I had so much passion for it. And I really wanted it to be this like magical place that I dreamed of when I was in high school. Like you wanted to be the fame school. Of course, yes. honey. Oh my God. Although Debbie Allen was tough. She's no joke. Okay. You know? Yeah, but that's the thing is everybody was doing an impression of Debbie Allen. Like everybody right. was like, but with no Debbie Allen, like joie de vivre to, no. to back it up. It's like, you just didn't. And they would, and I would audition throughout school. And like, I, I worked my ass off in school. Cause I was like, I don't trust anybody here. And I quickly realized like, they don't know what they're, they're, they're using rules from when they were out here auditioning. Like, waiting for like the mail to come with your callback or whatever. I'm like, times are changing. Even then, like, you know, I, I started college with like YouTube just starting. So I was sort of like the, like my generation was the prototype of like musical theater. I'm going to sing in front of this thing. And here's our audition videos and our blah, 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 blah. So it was clear to me that I was paying for a program and for, schooling that I was sort of overqualified for Interesting, <laughs> as obnoxious as that yeah, sounds, no, but I, I was just it. sort of like, yeah, I was like, this is stupid. And, yeah. um, I just really hated it. And I hate to see that. I mean, I think the school is doing better now, but I just think it's such a nasty, icky breeding ground for, you know, problematic behavior. But all that to say, some of my best teachers I I met doing that. So, right. and and I can say the same about mine. They changed my life in exactly. certain ways. But it, you re- it really is like choose your own adventure. Like that stuff's toxic. This stuff's great. You know, like yes. yeah, it's a it's a whole thing. Um, yeah. There's another question you picked from the observation deck. What's the mm. worst costume or uniform you've had to wear for work? I have had to wear truly heinous costumes because I am a bigger man. I am, uh, I don't have a typical like male body, even though like, you know, I have like sort of the average male body, but when it comes to like theater and productions and like certain things I've done, I did a show at the Muni. Um, I did 42nd street and I had, I looked crazy in this costume because it was like, too big like I, I'm just a very in-between size guy I have like big thighs and a big ass and like uh, you know a big weight so everything fits me weird so I've always had a really really hard time and my weight fluctuates constantly like I truly am the nutty professor <laughs> like it, it just it can get in one show I'll start like a size whatever and I'll end a size much different and when we were doing Margaritaville um it was really frustrating because I was like losing all this weight and with everything going on they weren't like you know redoing my costumes but I was like swimming in these costumes by the end of it and um many slips many falls many pants dropping many and I was like okay we are like fully on Broadway can I get a hem can your boy get (laughs) you know but I also am famous for um splitting my pants uh, in, in like on stage I did Oklahoma in college and I had to do these like sort of tuck jump things yeah and it just got built yeah, it got built into I did into Kansas my City. Tri- I did Oklahoma. I was the cowboy okay, dancer. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe I was in love with the other cowboy dancer. Maybe that was a thing. Okay, I can, you know, there's like, I can sit or something like that. Yeah. Those like other boys. 
Um, but I would do Kansas City, and then I would go give my pants to the costume person, and they would just like sew more gusset, like more. To, more me, to me, that says that you were giving, you were doing it full out. That to Fully. me says commitment as a dancer. Uh, yeah, I was like, yeah. if I didn't bust my pants, that means I'm marking. So thank you. Let's get that let's get that, that needle straight. threaded. So what was it like to be on Broadway? Um, unreal. As amazing as you imagine. Like, truly, um, even doing the campiest, like... It doesn't matter. You're on Broadway. The dream it doesn't of, like, matter. Someday and you're no going to be on Broadway. You know what? I'm, you can't take that away from you. You were on Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I was really lucky. I, I'm from Long Island originally, and my first preview, my high school rented like two school buses, and they brought a whole bunch of people from my town to like come and surprise me and like watch me do my first preview on Broadway. And like they all were waiting there teachers, students, like people that I, and I'm, I'm very close, and I like rock Bayshore Pride all the way through my entire life. I love my hometown and they have always like supported me like crazy. And so I'll like never forget after the joy of like finishing this show. And I had done the show from its workshop stages basically. So I had like really originated this thing and seen it go through many versions of itself and just like opening the stage door and seeing Mr. D'Antoni, Mr. Lorella, you know, like seeing these huge mentors and for me at a stage door in my, in my Broadway show to say, thank you. I did this because of you. Like, ugh, I could cry just thinking about it. It just was so, because it, it it really, as much as it like, it doesn't mean anything. It means everything, you know, like you can, you should be absolutely proud of whatever capacity you, you perform and you get to, like, it doesn't mean you haven't succeeded if you haven't been on Broadway, but there's something about like just getting it because it's just so hard. It's so hard. You have to check everything perfectly and you have to be the right thing at the right time with the right people. And like the odds of it are, if you think about it, are just overwhelming. Like it's truly overwhelming to ever get any job, let alone like you did a workshop that went into a reading that didn't do out of town that went into a mini tour that went into a Broadway show that closed in two months. (laughs) You know what I mean? That in itself is like the, the nutshell of like, wow, what we do is truly special. And I wouldn't change it for the world, even though, even I knew this is only going to last however long it lasts. It doesn't matter because I was able to say, all right, I know what it's like. And to, you know, people start talking to you different. They look at you different. The you're going into rooms. Nothing will change, but suddenly your career grows because finally you have that stamp of approval yes. of like you did it, and no one can ever take it away, take it away from you. Your your Broadway's blah 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 blah. Yeah, and to be a part of an original Broadway show and like to be there for the opening night and the horrible reviews the next day and the parties and the this and that. And like we did Easter bonnet. I like wrote our Easter bonnet sketch that year. And like, we Oh, I love like Easter. I got plays. to see Easter bonnet once. It's like this fundraiser where everyone does a skit and you are yeah. part of that whole community. Yeah. It's so fun. And like that community thing is just so cool. And like, you know, it's just unreal to just be like, all right, 
we fucking did it. Like, it just felt, it felt like I was with, I have this theory that most people doing theater, especially, are really just doing it for their, like, sixth grade self. There's just something, this little kid that's, like, pulling on your t-shirt being like, you can do it. Keep right. on trying. Right. We really want you to do it. You know, so to be able to give that gift to, like, my younger self was something that really, really, like, touched me. And it was this, like, <sighs> okay. Okay. Right. I'm not crazy. I'm not I'm chasing. Not like I'm not. It's not out of the realm of possibility that I'm pursuing this. Um, yeah. What, what kind of role did you play in that show, Escape from Margarita? Uh, so I played a character named Jesus, who was sort of like this celebrated ensemble member who was like one of the people vacationing on this island where it took place and the original when we first did the workshop of the show it was like a super ensemble like we added a lot of stuff and it was sort of this whole us as the sort of vacationers had a lot of like moments right. and then as the show changes and adapts and blah, blah blah they sort of zeroed it in more on like the principal story um but i got to play a bunch of bit parts like i was like dude number three here and blah 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 but there were all these like like I had a lot of these features in this ensemble and um it was so funny because I remember like the growth of it all makes me like laugh because when we were doing it we uh, debuted at La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego right and there was a time where they were like hey does anyone like is anyone good at like characters or like accents and like I didn't even raise my hand because I was like no, I'm probably not good enough for these things. And now that's, like, what I mostly do is, like, these character things and accent work. And, like, I'm doing a one-man show now. And, like, just to see that this person, me, was, like, shy, too shy to, like, stick out of this room of, like, dancer boys and yeah. girls who were, like, I don't know. No, I I'll do, do, I do pirouettes, you know. Like, I'm not the yeah. voice guy. Yeah, I'm not the funny voice guy. Exactly. Like, look at it, this layout. Was, Bam! Right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. So, you know, it's about learning that, uh, for me, a lot of it, Margaritaville taught me what my currency was and to not be afraid of it. And to this day, I quote this, my audition story for them because I went in and it was like me and like every newsie and every cat and every like oh, I dancer, love dancey. I you love know, me and every, They're never on oh, the ground. Honey. They're know, always in they're the always air. They're always flying, despite their huge butts. It's so crazy. <laughs> they have these big dumpers, and they get in the air. It's yes. amazing. I know. But I would date I a newsie, like, but they're never on the ground. You can't pin them down. You really got to pluck them. No. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we were, you know, in the room beforehand, and everyone's, like, you know, stretching their feet on, fucking, you know, doing 12 o'clocks and 6 o'clocks and all the different times and doing all this impressive, you know, people just doing standing back tucks just to be like, okay, yeah, nice and warm or whatever. <laughs> um, and um, our, our choreographer, Kelly Devine, was like, just so you know, like, this is not – that kind of a show, like we, the technique, obviously we love, but like we're looking for people and we're looking for people that are going to stand out and that are going to add characters to this ensemble. We want to see people individual. So I stopped focusing on everybody else and I looked at myself and I said, okay, let's tell a story with this dance right here, Mike. And I did this whole big story and I saw everybody in the room watching me. And honey, let me tell you, I've had plenty of dance auditions where nobody's watching me. So to feel like, oh, people are laughing at the bits that I'm doing while I'm doing this dance. I was like, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. And I just knew. And I, I saw her say like, that's what we're looking for. And it was such a testament of like, 
Yeah, I'm the least flexible bitch in this entire room. But they're not looking for a flexible bitch, so I'm the right one. You know what I mean? Right. Even in my what I saw as this like negative like thing that was holding me back, I'm not good enough for this. They weren't looking for that. So know when to give them what they're looking for. You know what I mean? Especially if you have it. Yeah, yeah, and know when. I think we spend our whole time trying to be the other thing that we're not instead of like owning what we are. And sometimes that's going to be the right thing. And a lot of times it's probably not, but that's okay. You just got to hang in. Right. I also have a theory about, um, is it escape to Margarita or from Margaritaville to you're going to it to yes. escape from Margaritaville two. is a yes. horror movie. It's different. Um, yeah. I have a theory the that sequel. there's excellent chips and salsa around the set if you're, if that's your show, am I right? <laughs> you know, you're not too wrong. There was, there was definitely a party vibe throughout the whole thing, which made it really fun. And like, you know, Jimmy Buffett brought like a full frozen margarita machine for like our green room. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was just like all of that fun stuff. And like our producers were fucking awesome. And like, there was such a, it was so great to, to, we wanted to provide this form of escapism that like, I still stand by. And I, you know, it was so fuck like annoying because Jesse green was the one who did our um, review and he like ripped us apart. He compared us to the King and I at one point. And it was just so annoying because it was like, you're first off, in a season with Mean Girls, Frozen, Margaret, it's not like it's all Chekhov and like Thornton right. Wilder over yeah. here. We're all doing commercial theater, so everybody calm down. Right. Enjoy and it. Have a margarita. It's Taco Tuesday somewhere. Exactly. Like, right. what's wrong with this? And you can you can pick it apart and have your opinions about the thing, but like, don't. It, it just felt like they were like the audacity of this show to like, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein are turning in their grave as if they, as if they care as Mark, if like Rogers and Hammerstein wants a fajita. That sounds delicious. It sounds fun. Okay. They want a little vacay. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And we would have people like fully blacked out, like having, having the best time. So would and, like, like, it kind of like rock of ages where the audience was drunk. Part of the time, wasted. I, I didn't realize it, but people would come. People would come see the show, and they'd be like, "Everybody around me was singing," and I was like, "What?" Like, because we can't hear it or whatever. Right. But like, because Jimmy Buffett's like, you know, fans. Right. The They're diehards. They're like the Grateful Dead kind of fans, right? Exactly. So they all go around, and they like. It's sort of interesting. They, they're like very pro, like um, environmentalists, and like oh, that's they're, cool. They're sort of yeah. I when I first got the thing, I was like, is this going to be like a Trump rally? And right. I just I just felt Trumpian. Yeah. But then the more I talked about it, the more I met Jimmy, and the more like all this other stuff, I was like, oh, he's just like a rich guy, but he's like doing his best, and like a lot of their stuff is like very, you know sort of woosah and like, you know, yeah, like island life. Right. It's a lot of like retired surgeons that are like, yeah, me and the other doctors sit around on our boats and we like listen to this yacht rock and like chill. And I fell in love with that. I was like, there is such a joy here. And like this community of like blacked out 40 to 50 year old, you know, top 10 percenters in the world right. really loved it. Um, what's you your know? favorite memory of Jimmy Buffett? Um, we had an opening party where he, I mean, he's just a really fucking cool guy. Like I will say he is everything that you imagine. 
he brought us on to um, the Jones Beach Amphitheater, and we sang, like, backup for him during his concert. Amazing. Like, at the Jones, which for me as a Long Island kid was, like, yeah. everything. Right. Um, and he's just so generous, like, so, such a good guy. And him and our producers, like, were just above and beyond, but... Um, uh, one of our producers DJed a lot, and like Jimmy also would DJ sometimes when like the party was starting to get a little crazy. Like they'd hop on the turntables and play music, and it was just like certain moments of like realizing, like, wow, what are we doing here? This is pretty wild. Yeah, I will always remember this. Um, here yeah. is another question you picked from the observation deck. What was on your lunchbox as a kid, and how did you feel about it? Okay, when I was younger, I had... Now, I used to get really embarrassed because my mom used to give me my lunch in a Ziploc bag. And I don't know... There was something... You know, all you want is, like, uniformity as a kid. You just want to, like, blend in with everybody. And everybody had, like, obviously, like, paper lunch bags, like normal people. But my mom gave me a Ziploc with, like, you know, like, the ShopRite Oreo cookies, like, in plain sight. Like, just might as well just say, like, poor kid. (laughs) Like... On the bag, but I had this grease lunchbox that had a grease thermos as well. Like that, I the movie Grease love. Yes, yes, like the 25th anniversary. Yes, like, and I was like this. It was like metal, like tin, yeah. vintage. I was like the oldest kid in fifth grade, and I was like, "This is it, doop, wobby, wobby, boobity, boom, yep. boom, whatever." We go together, like it. all of it. Yeah, you had a grease lunchbox. Yeah. I was like, wow. I, I was like, you're too young to even know, have a Grease lunchbox, but it was the re-release. And they uh-huh. put out a lunchbox. I, that's actually, that 25th, or maybe, yeah, 25th probably anniversary of Grease was huge for me. I had like the VHS and then like it came with the script inside. I was like obsessed with Grease. Wow. All right. <laughs> Tell people how they can find out about tickets. Hey, you can actually get your tickets celebrationtheater.org um, or, you know, just Google Celebration Theater buyer and seller. I also have the link in my bio on Instagram. Um, you can find me at Mike Milan, M-I-K-E-M-I-L-L-A-N. Um, and yeah, there's uh, there's a good amount of, I think there's two or three pay what you can tickets as well, and they're noted on the um, ticket thing, so if money is an issue, be sure to um, check that off in your calendars, because it's a great opportunity to come. And, um, um, yeah, my understudy also has one of those performances, and he's wonderful. His name's Daniel Burns. Um, so whether you see me or you see him, you're in great hands. Last question. What is your favorite moment of the show, A Buyer and Seller? There's a part that uh, at the end where uh, I've lost, Alex has lost a lot and sort of gets into a final fight. Um, and uh, it's just his sort of whole journey is encompassed in one line where he basically says he like reaches his arms out like i reached my arms as wide as i could and a person's arm span is roughly and i like start to turn around and i say like a person's arm span is roughly the same as their height and the circle you make when you spin around is uh is the amount of space you take up in the universe and there's just something about that after everything that we've been through stand in front of an LA theater by myself after just doing an hour and a half show. And I feel the audience with me still by the end of it. And to feel after being up and to have a moment of stillness and quiet where I can just say like, look how lucky I am. And for Alex to have this moment of I am enough 
with my own me Mike feeling I am enough by the end of it is just such a gift and it's such a beautiful to stand in the most vulnerable you know musical theater star star to be posed like arms out open and say I am enough I think is the best gift I could ever ask for with the show that is beautiful and it's a very memorable moment I remember it because I think it's what I think it's kind of what the play's about in a way like like it's not about stuff it's about people right um absolutely this was super fun thank Have you so much it's my pleasure it. okay thank take you. care you too bye-bye Bye. thanks again to mike milan go see him in byron cellar at the celebration theater through april 17th you can get tickets at celebrationtheater.org and it's theater re because it's classy it's a classy operation all right so this happened uh, the other night, I got to see a screening of The Godfather with Francis Ford Coppola being interviewed beforehand. It was the 50th anniversary screening at the new Academy Museum David Geffen Theater, which is probably the most spectacular place I can think to see a movie at this moment in terms of the size of the screen, the best sound, the best picture you can imagine. Uh, Talia Shire was also there, who stars in the movie... Uh, alongside Brando and Pacino and the rest of the gang. And they did a little interview up front before the movie screened. And Coppola was so cool. Um, He's thinner than I remember him being. He's probably in his 80s now. And he's got a movie that he's in pre-production for that he's going to make soon, which is very exciting. And it was just cool to hear him talk about, you know, how The Godfather happened. He was not... uh, a big A-list director at the time. They kind of got him because he was cheap and he had kind of happened upon the book of The Godfather, but it wasn't something that that he was super um, drawn to. Um, but he figured out a way into it and worked on it and it ended up becoming a classic. And it was just a thrilling night. My friend Danny and I went and it's one of those only in Los Angeles kind of nights. And it makes me happy that I live here when something like that happens. And it was the kind of night that... Uh, I haven't had in a very long time because of the pandemic. So it was cool. Such a treat. And I'm going back to see part two and part three later this week without Francis there, but it'll still be cool to see all of them, all of it, all together. All right. So that's a lot of deaths. It's a lot of um, offers people can't refuse. And I did have a flashback to when I was a kid. My parents were going to watch The Godfather on television and they told me I had to go to bed, that it was too grown up and I couldn't watch it. So I went to bed, but I couldn't sleep, and I was antsy. And so I padded out into the front room, and it was right when the scene with the horse's head is found in the the studio mogul's bed. Spoiler alert. And I went to bed. I still remember it. I remembered exactly what it looked like, the ornate bed and the screaming and the blood. And, uh, yeah, it stayed with me ever since since childhood. And, uh, And it was just as compelling this week when I saw it just as an amazing scene that's that movie is so full of like just great scenes and great moments and like oh moments so much all right just that sense of dread that violence could could erupt at any moment all right that's the show the theme music is composed by Mark Daniels and licensed through placement music mixing is by AJ Salsa and additional technical support by JB Bercy thank you for listening we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone bye